Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. Stephanie Dandler's new novel, Sweet Bitter, provides an insider's view into the restaurant industry. Her detailed descriptions of food and wine, paired with no shortage of sex, drugs, and late nights in New York City, has become one of this summer's must-reads, and for me at least, it was impossible to put down. Though the book is not memoir, it is inspired by Stephanie's experiences working in a variety of prestigious Manhattan restaurants. Stephanie is here today to talk about the intimacies that form in the kitchen and what she learned about relationships from her time working at restaurants. Stephanie Dandler, thanks so much for being on The Labor of Love today. Thank you so much for having me. This is an honor. Stephanie, you describe the book as a coming-of-age novel as well as a coming-to-New-York novel. And just like Tess, the protagonist of the book, you made a big move to New York in 2006 when you were 22. Can you talk about that period in your life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did give Tess a bit of my own biography in the year that she moves to New York City, the age that she is, the neighborhood that she lands in, and the kind of job she secures. And the other main facet that I feel I really lived through was the experience of falling in love with the restaurant industry, just falling down that rabbit hole head over heels and not being able to see out of it. I was hired in June of 2006 at Union Square Cafe, which is a landmark restaurant that is no longer in Union Square, but it was Danny Meyer's first. And so the next nine years of my life were dedicated to the restaurant industry. And like Tess, I didn't go in knowing that. I thought it was a place where I could wait, where I could make money. I thought it was temporary or transient. But like her, it took over. So it's interesting that you talk about falling in love with it. And certainly there are passages in the book where you can see Tess getting, you know, having that almost um, romantic, lustful feelings about the things that she's learning and the people that she's meeting and the headiness of it all. What was it about the restaurant industry that made you feel that way? Well, first of all, restaurants are a stage, and aesthetically, all the details are aimed to seduce, from the music to the lighting to the flowers to the scents. Then you bring in your senses, which are being asked to engage all the time. The food is visually stunning. Um, There's a lot of touching behind the scenes or touching guests on the small of their back. And once your senses ignite like that, every experience becomes more intense. And that is a lot like falling in love. Once you've entered kind of a intoxicated limerent state with someone else, the world is in technicolor. Everything is bright. But that can also come just from your senses being ignited by another source. And in this case, it starts with food, which then leads to lust and then leads to drives for intimacy and also to drugs and also to learning how to live and cope in New York City. So it sounds like both in your own experience and also clearly in the novel that it's sort of this cascade of of experiences that 
that are all incredibly sensual for Tess and for the reader, frankly, to hear the descriptions of the food and to, you know, there's several moments where, as you noted before, you're in very close proximity to your coworkers and there are these sort of passing touches, glances, all kinds of chemistry that's happening behind the scenes. My experience of the restaurant industry prior to this book was simply as a guest. And I feel like I have an entirely new perspective on what happens in that room now. Yeah, and I was really aware of that when I was writing the novel. I was aware that for the most part, servers are invisible and they are hands that set the plate at the correct angle and people that refill your water. But I was always so fascinated by the way real life was happening behind the scenes. A night working at a restaurant, and when I was managing restaurants, I would always say, if if this isn't fun, we should all go home because it's so <laughs> hard. It's so punishing physically, so draining emotionally. You're really absorbing other people's energy nonstop for 10 hours. They're frustrations and annoyances and their joy and their excitement and their anticipation. And at the end of the night, you feel utterly empty. So the point is to at least have fun while you're doing it. And I do think that you you said the word chemistry. I think that restaurants run on sexual tension. And whether it's between the staff members or the staff members and the guests, there's a certain amount of sexual bodily energy that I think, well, I respond to it in restaurants. And when I was staffing restaurants, I was always looking for that, for the sparks to be able to fly. I think that it makes for a better dining experience as well as a better working experience. It's so interesting for people like myself who have only sort of worked in offices in my career and the kind of juxtaposition between what you just described and the kind of sexual chemistry that is very alive in your novel and certainly it seems like in the industry as a whole. And you compare that with the kind of very typical office environments, even in creative fields in New York that I've been in, where the message is always to, if anything, keep those feelings and that energy and that that chemistry under wraps because it's dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And it is dangerous. And I think that that adds to the excitement of working in a place like a restaurant. I think that that adds to the sensory overload, to the adrenaline. And I think that is why it's so seductive to people because it's so heightened Everything is fast and noisy and chaotic and also a little scary. There's a point at the beginning of the book when you talk about scary, when Tess gets reamed by the chef for doing something wrong, for for dropping a plate of duck because she's burned herself. And I found myself terrified of this man, even though I was, you know, just reading it. It seems like there's, especially at the kind of high-end restaurants that you've been at and that this novel takes place in, it seems like there is a lot at stake, that there's a lot to be scared of. Yeah, it's not just, it's not just getting yelled at. It's that the stakes are incredibly high, even though people repeatedly tell tests throughout the novel that it's just dinner. There's this performance anxiety. 
as if it's a living piece of theater. And once one tiny aspect of it goes wrong, once she drops a plate and that slows that table down for 20 minutes and then you're running 20 minutes behind for the table afterwards, one little slip can throw an entire evening into a tailspin and every server is so aware of that. And they just don't want to be the person that throws off service. So Tess and her coworkers, you know, as you you described these very punishing shifts, these 10-hour shifts, and she describes the physical pain she feels. She describes just that emptiness that you were talking about. And then she and her coworkers spend a lot of time after hours drinking at the restaurant, but also going out, doing drugs, having sex. Talk a little bit about that, the role that the drugs and the sex play in the overall atmosphere of this kind of heightened environment and how it continues sort of after hours. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about restaurant work, you spoke about offices earlier, and I never worked in an office, but I imagine there's this period after you finish your shift in which you are winding down, in which you are catching up with people and decompressing from your day. You have a meal, you have a few hours before bed. Restaurant work finishes anywhere from midnight to four in the morning, and there's no time for you to have those hours. So things happen very quickly. The evening that you've been denied because you were waiting (laughs) tables all night has to happen before last call at the bars in New York City, which is 3.45 to 4 a.m. Not that I know that. (laughs) And the drinking and the drugs help. You find yourself ravenous at midnight for food, for company, for experiences. You've been locked in a room for 12 hours and in a lot of ways been made to feel very small and you want to feel expansive again. It doesn't hurt that most people working in restaurants are young and highly creative, are typically artistic in some way. They're usually desirous for things that will make them feel good very quickly. When I was um, sort of getting the lay of the land of the characters in the f- maybe the first quarter of the book, um, and you're getting sort of short descriptions of from Tessa's point of view of who these people are, um, and then as the novel unfolds, we learn more about them and their relationships, and the relationships Tess has with them start to form, and. It struck me as this highly dysfunctional family that was in a bubble that, you know, in in the real world, you as an adult or as a person in your 20s can often largely escape the dysfunction that you have maybe grown up with. But in this culture, this world and this, you know, novel, you kind of have to deal with everyone's dysfunction on such a heightened level because you're together all the time for these shifts. Did you ever feel like you were part of a family? Did that family dynamic ever feel oppressive? Two questions there. I definitely felt like I was a part of a family immediately from the very first restaurant job I had when I was 15 years old. In a lot of ways, the novel is about Tess's search for a new family, and she finds it in a restaurant 
and you have the maternal relationship and the paternal relationship and you have these brother-sister dynamics. But I did feel that those dynamics are also dangerous and not necessarily that family is dangerous, but in the way that Tess didn't have boundaries with these people. And I think that that's true of dysfunctional families as well. Boundaries are the most essential part. There's nothing inherently wrong with a group of dysfunctional people coming together. It's when you can't protect yourself within that group. And do you feel both, did you feel that you got to a point in the industry when you were working in it that you felt that you weren't protected anymore? You know, I didn't. I was managing for most of my career. And so I was highly aware of wanting to make a safe family space for the orphans. And I use quotation marks there because these are really emotional orphans that come to New York City and find refuge in the restaurant industry. I feel like it's a very particular experience to come to a city and just be estranged from your family whether it's by distance, whether it's for a reason. Most people in New York, their families are very far away. And so I was always very conscious and um, maybe to a fault (laughs) when I was managing to make a very safe, non-toxic space to the best of my ability. How? It's something I learned from Danny Meyer, and it's about putting – your restaurant family first before the guests. There is a level of protectiveness I felt about my servers so that they knew that I was always on their side. There's this idea within the service industry that the customer is always right, but that's really antiquated and it doesn't make for necessarily a safe or supportive work environment. And Danny Meyer says, take care of each other first, and that will trickle down to the restaurant. And so I practiced. I practice that professionally as a restaurant manager, and I try to still practice it now just in taking care of myself so that I can give more freely and it will trickle down to everyone else in my life. You were just describing the quote-unquote orphans that come to New York and some of whom are drawn to the restaurant industry because of that family feeling maybe, because it pays well, because it's fun, because it's important. Your history, your personal history mirrors that a bit. You've written about your father, um, his struggles with addiction, and your and your sort of very chaotic upbringing. Is that part of what propelled you to come to New York? And do you think that's also part of why the restaurant world was so attractive to you? I definitely found freedom from my own family in the restaurant industry. Again, I got my first job when I was 15 years old, and not only was it financial independence, which I think is so important and has shaped me, this working from such a young age, but it's emotional independence of feeling that you aren't trapped with your natural family, that you can create your own family. And I still really believe that. I. I choose the word orphan, though both of my parents are still alive, because I've experienced a certain freedom in my life that I'm very grateful for by not having that family unit. It's almost as if I don't 
have parents, but it has been such a blessing in a way. I think it can be a blessing. Mm -hmm. Do you talk to your parents? Have they read the book? I do talk to them, and I'm not sure whether they've read the book. Did you find when you came to New York and you were working um, side by side with people from all over that their stories that everyone had a reason for being there in the same way that you gravitated towards it, perhaps because you wanted some rootedness and, and a new kind of dynamic? Were other people drawn to it for the same reasons? Absolutely. I think that everyone who comes to a restaurant is searching for a home within New York City, especially. But I, when I moved to New York, I wanted to be a writer. That was what I had gone to undergraduate for. And I came to the city thinking that I was about to write the great American novel. And so I had a specific goal and I don't see that all the time when I was hiring people and all of the myriad of servers that I've worked with over the years. There is this sort of vague longing to become a person, to become an adult, to become a real live breathing human functioning in New York City. And that's enough. That's a lot, actually. It's a huge accomplishment. Yeah, I think so. And when I was writing the novel, it was very purposeful that Tess did not have an other. She didn't have an art. She didn't have an other industry. She just wants to become someone. Do you find now that you're out of the industry in the day-to-day that you find kind of for lack of a better word, real life, does it seem any, does it seem boring? I mean, there's so much happening in the worlds that you describe. There's so much energy. There's so much chemistry and tension and sensuality. And I wonder what it's like for you to be outside of that now. Does it seem, does everything else seem a little disappointing? That's a great question. No, to begin with, I'm I still have that lens through which I view the world. Everything is still about food and wine, and I'm still always observing chemistry and tension and bits of dialogue. But I will say that the restaurant, what I miss the most about it was having this kind of safe space with, in which to be performative or extroverted or flirtatious And then to be able to clock out at the end of the night and go back to being a writer. I've been writing full-time for a year now. And I I don't have that. I I don't necessarily have the social skills to go out on a Saturday night because I've I've never had Saturday nights since (laughs) I was a young girl. Yeah. And so I'm very grateful for all of those years in which... I got to be a little wild, but in a contained space in which I could exchange energy with people and still go back to my room and be this kind of introverted reader and writer. In talking and writing about the sex that goes on behind the scenes and the couplings that happen among 
the groups, the group working at this restaurant in the novel. I was thinking again about my own experience of office life and thinking about how the coming back to work the next day after these benders, these late nights, these, you know, sort of bacchanals, what is that like? Are you just kind of starting again every day and there isn't the you know, whether it's shame, embarrassment, giddiness from the night before. Um, it's such an interesting thing because, as you said, there is such a – there is such a – the restaurant is this this stage and you kind of have to act a certain way when you get back in there. But there's so much that's happened in the hours preceding it and I wonder what that feels like. I think that's one of the main differences actually between office work and restaurant work there's no accumulation in restaurant work. There's no list that goes over to the next day. There's very little continuity. The board is wiped clean at the end of the night. The next day you get there and the menu has changed and it's a new set of people that are on the dinner shift and your best friends aren't there and the guests are different and the music is different and the light in the dining room is different. And so there's this feeling that everything is impermanent. Everything can be wiped away or undone. And that's actually not true, but it's a very common trap to fall into. It's a very common trap of a mental trap to fall into when you start working at the restaurant, which I tried to explore in the novel, which is that I can just bounce back from this. It's a new day. I can start over. Not realizing that your actually your actions all have consequences. Whereas when you're working in an office, there's kind of this through line. You have to be a little bit more accountable to the way that you behaved the day before. So Tess is exploring her sexuality throughout the novel. I wondered how her experience um, mirrored what yours was and also what others around you, did this kind of relatively safe, structured environment allow people to test the waters when it came to sex and maybe try out some different personas and figure out who they were sexually? Absolutely. And I think that sex is such an important part of the coming-of-age story, understanding your sexuality, learning to take ownership for it, learning not to apologize for wanting pleasure, learning how to ask for the things you want. All of that I developed in my 20s. It's also a very, I think, a very fraught time to be a young woman because you're constantly being told who and what you are usually by men, sometimes by older women, it's hard to listen to your own voice. Can you give me an example of that? I think that when you're 22 and you come into a restaurant and you look a certain way, well, let me actually, I'm going to backtrack. And this is something that happens in the novel and something that's from my life as well. You have all these guests that come in and they take a look at you and they say, oh, you're from the Midwest. Oh, you look French. Oh, you look like this woman that I know who went to school in Connecticut. You look like a bad girl. You look like a good girl. You look like you're not going to make it. You look innocent. You look tired. 
there are all of these pronouncements about the way that you look and the kind of person that you are. And initially, Tess is absorbing it all. And I think that most of myself and my friends, most of us, spent a lot of time negotiating the names that people and labels that people were placing on us. And at a certain moment, you begin to take those labels back or begin to take ownership of them. Do you think that is something that the men in the industry experience too? Do they get those labels or is this particularly about women? In my experience in my life, it's particularly about women. I definitely think that it is a phenomenon that young women go through the act of being labeled and told who you are and what you like. Thank you so much for being here today, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. Those were excellent questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. Email me your questions and comments and suggestions for topics and guests at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed this episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. Thank you.